Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm John Posen, your host for this episode. COP26, the much-anticipated climate summit in Glasgow, is now over. It was two weeks of debates and negotiations between almost 200 countries in an effort to reach an agreement on how the world will address the most pressing climate issues and achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement set in 2015. Paul Bodner, BlackRock's Global Head of Sustainable Investing, joins me to break down what happened at COP26 and what it means for the future. Paul, welcome back to The Bid. Great to be with you. You and I both made the trip to Glasgow, along with about 40,000 delegates from around the world. This is your 11th COP. But I have to ask, what made this COP different from all other COPs? Well, John, that's a simple question, but it has a complicated answer. I think for the first 25 editions of this annual climate show, the focus has been on the negotiations among governments. And at the 21st COP, which was in Paris, we concluded the Paris Agreement. And then for a few COPs after that, countries fought over the detailed implementation rules for the Paris Agreement. Those are now done. And in the meantime, the problem of climate change has become more and more urgent to deal with. The science has improved. And the number of stakeholders that have committed to net zero, be they companies or financial institutions, has also increased. So what you saw at this COP for the first time is that the trade fair is sort of taking over the meeting. Whereas before it was a marginal thing and the negotiations were the main event, now the private sector took center stage and so did finance. And you started to see the kind of problem solving that will actually be necessary across governments, corporates, financial sector, and civil society to decarbonize the complexities of the global economy. So what is that kind of problem solving that we need that involves the private sector and a range of other players besides government? So if you think about the way the global economy is actually organized, it's not divided into 197 pieces. So while the Paris Agreement is a very important foundation, for the way the world is dealing with climate change. Its approach of having countries set targets is not translatable into a plan for decarbonizing global industries because global industries have global supply chains, global markets, global investors like BlackRock, shared technology pathways. So we need to think and act like the economy we are trying to decarbonize. And that approach, which is now taking flight, as we saw in Glasgow, puts the private sector at center stage because it's the assets owned by companies that emit greenhouse gas emissions that we're trying to turn over over time with variations that are zero carbon. So take the example of what's happening in the steel sector. A number of leading steel makers have come together and created a roadmap to net zero for the steel sector. They did a lot of homework around the technologies that would be available, when those technologies would reach cost parity, what kind of policy support they would need, what their customers were looking for, what their suppliers of energy could provide, and they came up with this roadmap. And now, banks that play a significant role in financing the steel industry are taking that roadmap and trying to translate it into an agreement for what kinds of lending and financing they will do for the steel industry. 
And the customers of the steel industry are taking that roadmap and figuring out how they can write that plan into their procurement standards because they want to be buying green steel, but they know it's going to take time for the current carbon intensive steel to become green steel. So they want to support that journey. They want to send a clear demand signal into the steel sector. So if you think about these steps, the corporates developing a roadmap, the banks using that roadmap to come up with climate aligned finance plans for the steel sector and customers, you start to get the building blocks of an approach and a planning process that's centered around companies Governments are involved in that process. Governments need to support a sector's decarbonization pathway, including through regulation and through research and development funding. But it's really the companies whose strategies and investments and behavior we're trying to influence at the end of the day for a lot of these sectors. So it makes sense to use them as the unit of analysis rather than nation states. So I think in Glasgow, we saw the fruits of that process start to bear out for steel as well as a number of other sectors of the economy. You mentioned when talking about steel that finance needs to be part of these discussions. Now, in the months leading up to COP, the financial sector organized itself into the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or the awkward acronym of GFANS. Can you tell us what GFANS is and what it's trying to do? So over the last few years, there has been a growing awareness within the financial sector about climate risk, and not just the values-based transition to focusing on environmental protection, but more importantly, the question of how financial portfolios needed to account for the transformation in the global economy that's underway due to the combination of trying to deal with physical risks of climate change and the transformative impacts of our efforts to decarbonize the global economy. And it's become well understood that this whole process of transformation affects banks, it affects asset managers, it affects asset owners and insurers, of course. And so it's no surprise to see these firms getting more organized. And frankly, their clients and their customers have been demanding that they get more organized. And so that took its final form, as you mentioned, in Glasgow with the emergence of this Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which brought together banks that had formed their own net zero banking alliance, asset owners that formed their own net zero asset owners alliance, and so on, into a kind of superstructure, 440 major global financial institutions representing 130 trillion in assets that all had committed to the objective of helping the global economy reach net zero by 2050. Not necessarily, again, out of some values-based judgment, but because is better for the economy to successfully make that transition. And that the successful attainment of net zero by 2050 will create better conditions for economic growth and prosperity across the world than failing to do so. Let's talk about some of the highlights from this meeting. There was a lot of focus in Glasgow around methane, around coal, around deforestation. Did any agreements come of that or were those just discussions about these areas? Yes. So one of the really interesting things about this meeting is that the biggest breakthroughs came not from individual country announcements, but from these thematic areas that you mentioned. So in the area of coal, the Powering Past Coal Alliance, which is a public-private coalition, swelled to include coal-dependent countries for the first time, like South Korea, Poland, Vietnam, and Egypt. And countries 
with a significant fleet of relatively young coal-fired power plants like Indonesia, the Philippines, and South Africa agreed to try to figure out how to retire those power plants early to help avoid their climate impacts. In the area of deforestation, more than 130 nations representing more than 85% of the world's forest cover committed to ending deforestation by 2030, and that will have significant implications for supply chains for agriculture and commodities. And then on methane, which is a powerful greenhouse gas that arises in the process of oil and gas production and other sectors like agriculture and waste management, 100 nations committed to slashing methane emissions 30% by 2030. And this was actually supported by the oil and gas industry and other private players. I'll give you one more example, which is one of the most important things that we need to do if we are to track towards a net zero economy is accelerate the rate at which we innovate certain technologies that will be key to getting there, like long duration battery storage or sustainable aviation fuel or green hydrogen. And what's interesting in Glasgow was to see the sort of conveyor belt of innovation being built, going from basic research to government-funded R&D to commercialization and a really concerted effort across governments, venture capital, and technology companies to transcend these valleys of death that have traditionally slowed the development of these technologies. When we look at what happened in the last 12 months with vaccines, we saw what happens when the world really focuses on trying to make a technology breakthrough fast. And I think people took a lot of heart from that, and they're starting to apply that learning to heavy decarbonization technologies. Was there any signal that governments would provide the support needed for those sorts of innovations? In fact, yes. So in Paris, governments set up an initiative called Mission Innovation, where 20 of the world's largest governments committed to double the rate of clean energy research and development spending, which they've largely accomplished. And now they've renewed that initiative and they've connected it in interesting ways to private initiatives like the Breakthrough Energy Catalyst, which Bill Gates founded and which BlackRock has helped support, whose goal is, again, to kind of connect the whole innovation chain from the kind of research and development that mostly public dollars are able to fund at scale, all the way through to commercialization and to try to get those technologies through that process as fast as possible. Paul, it was hard to piece together from reporting about the COP whether or not there was a major agreement. Could you dig into that for us? Sure. So this COP wasn't necessarily designed to produce the kind of iconic multilateral agreement that the Paris Agreement delivered in 2015. Its actual agenda for negotiations was pretty technical. There was one loose end from the Paris Agreement rulebook that hadn't been figured out related to the operation and rules around carbon markets, and they did resolve that issue. And then governments spent a lot of time putting together a kind of cover statement of intent, which stretched 97 paragraphs in the end, and which the UK government termed the Glasgow Climate Pact. But if you read that statement, which, as you say, was reported by some outlets as a, quote, major agreement, it isn't really a major agreement. It's more of a lagging indicator of where the world now is on climate change. I mean, much was made of the fact that the Glasgow Climate Pact mentions the word coal for the first time ever in a decision by a cop. 
and it refers to a phase down of unabated coal. Well, I don't think that the need or the intention to do that comes as much news to the world, right? The fact that it appeared in a consensus document of 200 nations for the first time tells you more about the fact that this process is a lagging indicator of what's going on in the world, in the private sector, and in financial markets. So I think this represents an awkward transition that we saw underway in Glasgow between a world in which governments are running the show and driving progress to a world where governments in many ways are struggling to catch up with what's really happening in the private sector and in financial markets. And on the one hand, that's good news because markets have a track record of driving deep, broad, and rapid change in the global economy. On the other hand, it's not great news because we really need governments to deliver on important aspects of policy if we are to drive this transition as fast as it needs to go. What's the one big question you felt no one was asking at COP26? Well, you know, John, there's a lot of focus on building the green economy, figuring out the technology for clean energy generation, green hydrogen, efficient buildings. And I think there's a growing sense of confidence that markets can figure out how to build the green economy. The challenge that people don't talk enough about, including at COP, is that you can't decarbonize the world by building a green economy on top of a dirty one. And what it's going to take to have a smooth transition out of the carbon-intensive legacy industries and assets that we have today is not just by building more green stuff alongside them. It's a much trickier process because unless we're careful, we're going to leave a lot of workers and communities and investors stranded by an accelerated retirement or pulling out of service of coal-fired power plants, high-carbon steel, cement, all of these things that we're trying to pull out of service faster than they were designed to be is going to have a big impact on both capital and labor. And making that work is the hard part of net zero. Building a green economy is the easy part. So my hope is that in future years, we're going to see a much bigger focus, not just by governments, but through the creative engagement of the private sector in how to ensure there's a just transition to net zero that doesn't leave people behind. With that in mind, did you walk away from this COP optimistic or pessimistic? I walked away pretty optimistic. The International Energy Agency did a flash analysis of all the pledges that were made at the COP related to methane and deforestation and coal and other topics as we've discussed, including some national announcements by India and others. And the IEA estimated that if all these pledges are fulfilled, global temperatures will only rise 1.8 degrees centigrade. And that would be a major accomplishment and a huge sign of progress since Paris, when a similar analysis would have yielded something like 3 degrees centigrade. So I'm optimistic about the extent to which all stakeholders in this process, be they governments or companies or civil society, are really putting their shoulder to the wheel to figure out the how of net zero transition. I think the challenge is that pledges don't equal plans, don't equal implementation. So although we've closed this ambition gap 
And we've fulfilled the UK government's stated ambition for the COP, which was to keep 1.5 degrees alive as an aspiration. I think we face the difficult work now of implementing these ambitious pledges and showing that this unprecedented project in human history of trying to decarbonize the entire economy at speed can succeed. Paul, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you for giving us a look into COP. Always a pleasure to be on The Bit. Thanks for having me. This information is for informational purposes only and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. The information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K. and non-European economic area, EEA, countries, this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL. Telephone plus 44020-7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 02020394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. Please refer to the Financial Conduct Authority website for a list of authorized activities conducted by BlackRock. In the European Economic Area, EEA, this is issued by BlackRock Netherlands BV, is authorized and regulated by the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets. Registered Office, Amstelplein 1, 1096 HA, Amsterdam. Telephone, 020-549-5200. Telephone, 3120-549-5200. Trade register number 17068311. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. For investors in Switzerland, this is marketing material. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited. Company registration number 20001014 n This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited ABN 13006165975 AFSL 230523BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. Before making any investment decision, you should assess whether the material is appropriate for you and obtain financial advice tailored to you having regard to your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, and circumstances. 
In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice, nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund, nor shall any shares be offered or sold to anyone in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase, or sale would be unlawful under the securities law of that jurisdiction. If any funds are mentioned or inferred to in this material, it is possible that some or all of the funds may not have been registered with the securities regulator of Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Panama, Peru, Uruguay, or any other securities regulator in any Latin American country, and thus may not be publicly offered within any such country. The securities regulators of such countries have not confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide available at www.blackrock.com forward slash MX. Copyright 2021, BlackRock Incorporated. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Incorporated. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.